This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to bring you this episode. I had been thinking about doing something at least relating to the MVP race, and then Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated wrote a nice piece and, and with a lot of infographics and stuff about his argument for James Harden winning, which I thought was very interesting. And so we started there, and then we went into a lot of other topics, talked about the Warriors, talked about the playoff picture, and then because of the way the playoff picture part goes, we ended up getting into the offseason, some things that we're interested in, some things that we're looking forward to. So it goes in a lot of different directions. I did not do timestamps for this episode, partially because of the way I edited it and partially just because I didn't think it really, everything flowed into each other well enough that I didn't think it really needed it. This episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, my personal go-to for buying and selling tickets. And if you download their free app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and you go to the settings tab, enter the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, it'll get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. Conversation with Ben runs about an hour and a half, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. Always good to chat. How's it going? Good. Taking a little bit of a breath after everything that's been going on. But you wrote a piece that I, I felt was a good place to start about the MVP race. You're, it was on kind of Harden's special season. And we, we'll go into the specifics of that as well. But really just starting with a basic question of where do you see the race right now personally? Like, how do you see it? And also, is that the same as your expectation for how the voting might go? Well, look, Danny, my, my underlying motive in writing the Harden for MVP uh, post this week was trying to get Westbrook to put together a 57-point triple-double, and it, it worked perfectly just two games later. So I, I feel some level of responsibility there for uh, poking the bear. But no, this is an awesome MVP race. I mean, I think the battle lines have kind of been drawn between the main candidates. To me, I'm basically ready to call it for Harden. Uh, I know Westbrook's going to be in an opportunity here to really push strong in terms of you know their final record because their <clears throat> schedule is a little bit light. But when I was digging through the uh, the numbers and trying to make my case for Harden, uh, what really jumped off the page was obviously his own scoring numbers, his distribution numbers, which I think are sort of on par in terms of a historical standard with what Westbrook's doing with the triple-double, but also just how good Houston's offense has been this year. And we all know that they kind of built their entire attack around him. And I think the Rockets' offense gets lost or overlooked a little bit because Golden State's just on this totally different plane these last few years where it's making you know offensive efficiency just seem you know almost like a solved puzzle. Uh, and Houston is right there with them. Clearly their talent is significantly less than Golden State's. I think to be able to put together – you know, one of potentially one of the five best offenses of the three-point era with one all-star and a whole bunch of guys who support that all-star is really, really, really impressive. And so that's one thing that I came down on. Another one to me that's big to, to consider is style points. And you know, the way Westbrook is doing some of these things late in games, you know, the clutch play, it's spectacular. And, and he is really good at uh, accomplishing difficult tasks. But uh, it's similar to the argument I made for Curry over Harden two years ago when I think Harden was doing some of those same things, you know, kind of dragging a team along uh, by himself. 
you know, it's not always how hard it looks or, you know, how hard you're working. It's kind of how smart you're working. And I think, you know, the Warriors a couple of years ago, you know, Curry's first MVP season, I just thought he was on a different plane in terms of where he was taking his team. And he was really just making it look easy and maybe not getting enough credit for how easy he made it look. And it's kind of the same thing with Harden. I mean, these guys consistently, you know, put up 120, 130, 140 points. He's factoring into all of it. And so there's going to be a lot of situations where uh, it's not to the degree of the Warriors where Curry's often sitting entire four quarters, uh, but maybe he's not having that same showcase where he needs to grind out an overtime win uh, over a team like the Orlando Magic. So uh, those are some of the things that kind of swayed me towards Harden over Westbrook. But, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, too. It's a real challenge. And something that I've been very open about in this process is that you know, while there is a little bit of a group think with some of us that are kind of run in the same circles, I mean, obviously Nate and I are, are an obvious line with that, but also, you know, you could draw Kevin Pelton and a few others into that group is the, but I understand that I am an outlier and a big part of it is that you're making for Westbrook, you're making a couple of really unconventional cases. One is a team that is clearly not great. I mean, they're, they're doing very well, but they're not great. I mean, they're, they're not, a title contender. They're not any of that stuff. And I mean, it's funny. I I got Memphis Grizzlies fans got super mad at me when I said I wanted Vince Carter on a title contender. And they're like, Oh, no, we're a title contender. It's like, no, watch, watch the rest of the league. You'll see that there, you know, there's another little group there. And it's very, very weird in NBA history to have a guy who you think is a deserving MVP who is not on that sort of team. But for me, this is an anomaly year. And I, I think that there's a great case for Harden. I'm not knocking that, but there are a couple reasons why I'm, to me, it's Harden and Westbrook and then kind of everyone else. LeBron would be in that mix, but I mean, right now he's a little bit behind them, even with his heavy minutes per game, he's still a little bit behind them. And, you know, I think he's third and then I think Kawhi's fallen off a little bit to fourth with his struggles, especially post-concussion. I mean, Kawhi's fabulous, but being fourth in the MVP race is not a big deal. Anyway, back to Russ. The biggest reason why I'm Russ over Harden is that I appreciate how hard it is for him to elevate the other players that he's that he's with. I mean, not only are you dealing with guys that are not necessarily the most offensively capable, so that's a big difference because while Anderson and Gordon, you know, they're imperfect, they are definitely offensively capable. It's also true that so many guys this year with Russ are having really, really nice years. Like I think about what Oladipo has been able to do. And yeah, you could say some of that is also that he's not on the magic anymore. But with Russ, you have that part of the story that like, yeah, they're, so their, their offensive rating is 108.1 when Russ is on the floor and Harden's is 113.9. So, you know, that's a difference of about six points per hundred possessions. That's a lot. That's a really, really big difference. But I think the difference in surrounding talent is greater than that personally. And that's, it's a hard call. It's an arbitrary thing. You know, you're going into a lot of different elements. The second part is something that you got into where you could make a legitimate argument that Oklahoma city should not play as much in the clutch as they do, but the difference is legitimately awe-inspiring. So Harden is number two in clutch usage. So that's basically the percentage of possessions that, you know, the ball, that, that the, the final resolution is, and he is involved in that. Westbrook is number one And the difference in efficiency, while Harden is a substantially more efficient player overall, is actually kind of neutralized. I I haven't looked at turnovers, but in terms of true shooting, they're close. And the Thunder have this appalling plus 24.7 net rating in clutch games, and the Rockets are plus 2.7. And there's a lot of noise in that. It's a small sample size. A lot of the Thunder clutch games are against teams that they probably shouldn't have gotten there. The Magic game that was, was yesterday is a great example of that. 
but plus 24.7, you know, that that's completely ridiculous. And when you look at their talent, you go, this doesn't make sense for this team to be to be good in the clutch other than maybe defensively. So Russ doesn't get credit for the defensive part of that very much, but the offensive part of it is really all him. Well, a couple of counters. I mean, first of all, their clutch record, you know, Oklahoma City's 23 and 14, Houston's 20 and 15. There's not a big difference there. And I think when you look at their record versus good teams, you know, they're not even close to, to competing with like team like Golden State. I mean, Houston did get at least one win off Golden State this season. But if you look at like Westbrook's record versus the top five teams in the league or the, or the teams with other MVP candidates, I want to say he's three and nine this year against those teams. So it's hard for me to say that amazing, you know, gutting out amazing wins against you know, mediocre teams and still having a similar winning percentage to a team that's significantly better than you in the standings uh, is going to be my main source of my argument if I'm making this MVP decision. I think another thing to keep in mind is that some of our viewing of their respective casts has already been colored by hindsight. You know, if we go back to the start of the season, the odds makers basically gave both those teams the same over-under. You know, Houston and, and Oklahoma City, I think Houston was a half game better uh, than Oklahoma City. So the impartial Las Vegas oddsmakers, for whatever that's worth, viewed you know their respective chances at success very similarly. Now, that's obviously, Houston point. has become Houston has become the biggest overachiever this season. I mean, they've blown expectations away by the most. I think Washington is second, and actually Oklahoma City is. I'm pretty sure top five, uh, and will probably move up a little bit, like I said, because of their weak schedule. Uh, but you know, we're taking guys like Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon for granted. Uh, as you know, amazing contributors. That's not where they were last summer when those guys got their contracts. I mean, we were all questioning those deals. Is it going to be worth it? Is it going to work? Are they going to be able to win enough with this offensive-only approach? And Houston came out of the gate so strong that those questions got put to bed very early, and we just assumed that all these guys were now significantly better than Westbrook's supporting Cavs. Uh, again, I look to how much is Harden pulling that success from those players. I mean, some of those guys, their careers were dead on arrival. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you look back uh, at where the Pelicans were last year with those players. I mean, they were not super useful. And you can go down like, you know, some of these bigs that he's he's setting up in pick and roll situations as finishers. I mean, he's making their lives really easy. He's making them productive offensive players uh, by his mastery in the pick and roll scenarios. So to me, he's getting a lot out of his teammates. And, you know, I, I question how much Russ is. I mean, I know the assist numbers are there. I know his own you know, demonstrated offensive impact is there for sure. Uh, but I also think that the degree uh, that he's, you know, using the ball, I mean, this record-setting usage rate necessarily holds his teammates back, and it's just not the best way to play basketball. And I think that's been proven uh, time and again. You know, in my post, I also kind of looked at where various MVPs who have won it, where the usage rate kind of falls and, and how efficient they are as individual scorers. And Westbrook's obviously in a category all by himself because of the usage rate, but also his efficiency, you know, it's kind of in the ballpark of like super late career Michael Jordan or Allen Iverson, uh, whereas Harden's much more in line with these modern MVP winners, whether it's Durant in Oklahoma City in 2014, uh, whether it's Curry for his uh, first MVP year. So to me, again, it, it kind of goes back to Westbrook is doing more than everybody. Uh, but is that necessarily the best thing uh, for his team? And is there a smarter way? And I think that, you know, you can make a really strong case that Harden and the Rockets are stumbling into this smaller way in much the same way that the Warriors have these last couple of years. 
And when you look at his usage rate, which is huge, when you look at his assist numbers and playmaking numbers, which are huge, and one fact that I kind of unearthed, which I'm not sure people know this, but if you add up Harden's points, rebounds, and assists this year, that number is higher than every MVP from 1980 to the present. So he's also putting just completely like off-the-wall numbers uh, up this year. Uh, and obviously Westbrook's a little bit higher with the triple doubles, but you know Harden is still in this like completely banana statistics class. So I, I don't know. I, I'm still coming back to. I don't want to be the guy who says, "Oh, his team is better. He definitely deserves to win." But I think when you've got a historic offense, a significantly better team, you know, bananas individual stats, uh, and you're the number one overachiever, you know, in terms of your team's success, I think that's a very compelling all-around case. It certainly is, and that's why to me it's it's those two guys that are separated. And your point on Russ is very interesting in terms of the idea of, you know, is he elevating his teammates? And I don't think this is necessarily a counter because I think that's a good point. But one of the fundamental differences between these two teams is that I think Harden has teammates that are capable of being elevated offensively. You know, like Ryan Anderson, if you put him in the right spot, he's going to do it. And Harden deserves all the credit in the world for doing that. Russ's teammates, in my opinion, are, you know, more like be the worker bees, be the defensive guys. If you get an open shot, you know, maybe it'll go in. And that goes along with the idea that I know that some people have tried to argue is a thought experiment here, which is what happens if you swap these two guys? And I think both teams get substantially worse. I agree a hundred percent. And part of that though, is because Houston has spent about three years now with their roster moves trying to get the formula around Harden, right? And they've made their share of mistakes. I mean, look no further than Dwight Howard. You know, Maury's really been through this. I'm, it's almost like a thought experiment where this is going to work, this won't work, we're going to try this. And then they finally kind of put together this ideal scenario. And by the way, that process involved finding the perfect coach, too, for what makes Harden great and, and somebody who Harden uh, is willing to respect and, and kind of uh, you know, play up for. And so the Thunder just aren't there with their roster, you know, and I think that's part of it. And I, and I hate to hold that against Westbrook, but this is not necessarily the ideal team uh, to build around him. I think, you know, he can have a more successful team if they had different pieces around them. Uh, and that may very well be coming here in, you know, you know, another year or two. I mean, clearly they were blindsided by the Kevin Durant thing. And, uh, you know, a Westbrook centric team is going to look a lot different than a Durant slash Westbrook centric team. So, you know, from that standpoint, uh, I think that Westbrook's case might be held back to some degree uh, by his teammates, but I completely agree with your point that if you switch them, both teams would be worse. But I do think that I think Harden's with the Thunder would be slightly better than Westbrook uh, with the Rockets uh, relatively. Uh, but again, this is a, you know, this is theory. This isn't, this isn't practice. And I, I think it's very important to keep the MVP conversation grounded in this 82 game sample size. So do I. And the other element that makes this MVP year so weird is that I think a lot of capable analysts, and I think I know that I'm a part of this, and I guess you are, would argue that neither Westbrook nor Harden is the best player in the NBA. And that's a very weird argument, too. Well, if I'm starting a team, Westbrook's not even my top five. I mean, he's very close. He's like six or seven, and, and Harden's towards the end of it. I mean, I'd definitely take LeBron, Steph, and, and Kevin Durant, you know, before either one of those guys. Right? And you could put Kawhi there, too. Yeah, I would take Kawhi. He'd be my fourth. So that's tricky. But, yeah, that's why the MVP award is so ripe for debate. Otherwise, we'd give it to LeBron every year, and that's what Shaq told me a couple of weeks ago. He's like, I'm just like LeBron. I could have won every year. And you go back and – you look at the number of years where he finished in the top five or even the top three, he had crazy numbers and he only won it once. I mean, it is, you know, very strange and it shows how much the stories kind of play into it. You know, one thing that you can kind of make an argument against Harden and Westbrook 
is that you know their playoff ceiling looks to be pretty hard. Uh, you know, especially after they got humbled again by Golden State, and I think Harden right now is three and seventeen against the Warriors since Kerr has been the coach. Uh, if you include the playoffs, I mean that is pretty damning, and they've obviously figured him out. And I, I don't necessarily like Houston shots too much against San Antonio in a series either. So if we're looking at a scenario where you know these top two MVP candidates supposedly uh, will probably both be out by round two. That is a little weird. And, and that's where I hear the Kawhi people, you know, and that's also you know, where I hear the LeBron people, too. But again, I go back to it's not about kind of forecasting into the future of the playoffs. It's more about what's happened here during this season and um, you know, who's had the most impressive all around performance. Right. And when I was going through, I put some stuff together when we were doing this. And, and something I found that was an interesting analog in this is that so there is a parallel in arguments for Westbrook and LeBron, which is that. Their teams are a little bit, they're really good when they're on the floor, but that's true with all four of these guys, but they fall off a cliff when those guys are out. Like that's a big difference with LeBron. Of course, there's the the stat that I think they've only won one game that he didn't start since he got back to Cleveland. And it doesn't make sense that they struggle as much as they do, considering they have two other all-stars and there's maybe that, that goes into some other stuff, which I don't want to get into with Kyrie Irving and with Westbrook, you know, it's just that his talent isn't, isn't that good. You know, like that's how it goes. But with Leonard and Harden, those teams have better benches and their drop-offs are less severe. You know, like there is that stat, Matt Moore has written about this, that the Spurs defense is substantially better when Kawhi's off the floor. I think that's a lot of noise, but saying that the Spurs without Kawhi, you know, like when they go to those bench units, stay at about the same level is totally fair because the Spurs and the Rockets probably the two best benches in the league. Yeah. I mean, I love the on-off numbers and it does get tricky because, you know, do you give credit to the guy when he's on or do you really hold the bench? Uh, You know, is that what's influencing it? Like I saw someone making the case for John Wall today and, you know, he's got a crazy on-off impact because of, you know, what happens when they take him off and they're trying to, you know, run things through you know, who was it, Burke or, or Brandon Jennings. I mean, some of these guys where it's like you, you close your eyes anytime they're on the court. So I definitely look at the on-off numbers and, you know, I look at the real plus minus, which which kind of gets to the same thing in terms of, you know, which guys are having the biggest impact. But I think sometimes impact goes beyond just that number. And when I look at Harden in terms of, you know, just locker room dynamics, when I look at in terms of leadership ability, uh, when I look in terms of, uh, his fit with his coach's system and how that kind of gives them a distinct style of play and a certain confidence that goes beyond just, uh, you know, when he's on the court, it gives them a structure. A lot of these things I was holding against Harden last year because he wasn't doing, you know, he, he wasn't able to make it work with Dwight. He wasn't able to put those personality issues aside. Uh, you know, he came into the season, not focused. It led to a coaching change and it led to, you know, a lot of turmoil for the rest of that entire season. I think he's taken accountability for some of those things. I think he's grown up a lot over the last 12 months, just in limited interactions with him. And I think his impact on their entire organization is very clear. And I think basically everyone in that, in, uh, in that orga- organization would swear by his impact uh, in much the same way, you know, that the, the Warriors would say things about Steph Curry these last couple of years. So I'll phrase that in a specific way, which is I think that he made the transition from franchise talent to franchise player. And you brought up Curry. That has to be my analog for it because that's the guy I covered and saw him go through that transition. With Curry, it was a little bit different just because he knew what he was getting into because of his dad. So I think he had the idea of what that was the whole time. But with Harden, he had to figure that out. I mean, think about where he started his career. He started his career as a super sub on a 
shaky team and then on a on a on an amazing team and he never had to shoulder that burden he and even back in the day like Durant was a different type of guy then too I mean Durant I don't think he ever he stepped into that spot until his MVP year or maybe the year before that so I I think that that's an amazing transition and Russ does it a little bit differently I I think that you know he, he his teammates gravitate towards him as well he's a big part of it too but it's a good point in terms of the way, like, I think Harden doesn't get enough credit for how central he is to everything good that is happening there. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, that is the crux of my argument. And the one way that I tried to illustrate it, and I put it in that post as well, is to just take, like, I think I took the last 10 or 15 years of the NBA and I graphed offensive efficiency with winning percentage, right? To just kind of show exactly where Houston stacks up. And again, they're in Golden State's shadow. You know, I mean, nobody is going to be. Uh, you know, a 73 and nine team, this insane offensive efficiency from last year. They're having trouble even keeping up with the Warriors this year, uh, even though, you know, Durant's been in and out and, you know, maybe it hasn't been quite as smooth or quite as eye-popping win totals this season. But the Warriors are in their own class. If the Warriors just didn't exist, if we were in this Warriors-free reality, there would be so much hype around the efficiency of Houston's offense, setting records, you know, taking things to new, you know, to a new dimension, and it's working. They're winning a lot. I mean, there was a lot of questions coming into the season. Can this team even win 45 games? Uh, because they're a completely one-way team. Those questions were fair, and they've answered all of them. Uh, and again, it, it all goes back to Harden. Another big part, and this is something that he shares with Westbrook, is just the durability factor. I mean, that should always factor into these discussions. He's tried to play it up a little bit more maybe than it's fair by saying, oh, you know, don't take nights off if you're going to be MVP or, or whatever he said recently. Uh, that's going too far. Uh, but the fact that he has been there every single night, that he's been able to carry them through what you know would be rough patches in their schedule, you know, potential down moments, the kinds of things that hit all teams – uh, again, that that is something that's definitely in his credit, and and actually, you know, Westbrook gets the same credit for that as well. I mean, his night to night effort, I think, is unparalleled in the NBA. So on that stand, I think they both deserve credit. But again, maybe Westbrook gets more credit for that because it's so much more obvious how he's doing it. You know, he's running through brick walls. He's taking every single shot down the stretch. I mean, it's really easy to focus on the amount of effort that he's expending uh, when you look at Harden. Again, he's right there with Westbrook on that category. Right, and. That's actually something that doesn't hurt LeBron as much. I mean, you say, "Oh, well, he's missed he's missed some games, but he missed I think he's missed six, but in because he plays so many minutes, which I think is a mistake, he's actually pretty much in line." So, LeBron and and Russ as we're recording this are both at around 2500 and Harden and Harden's at 2700. And that's incredible because when you think about most valuable player, if we're getting rigid at it, the more time you play, the more value you add. And all three of those guys have incredible arguments in that way. Oh, for sure. And well, it really makes you think, though, like imagine if Ty Lu was Westbrook's coach, right? <laughs> or, or imagine if like Randy Whitman from a few years ago was Westbrook's coach where they weren't keeping the minutes off of him. You know, they like I've actually been really impressed. Oklahoma City has not run up his minutes nearly as, uh, as much as I thought they might this year. Uh, but imagine if Westbrook was out there playing 40 minutes a game, what his stats would look like. And if we didn't have the last three or four years of sort of sports science information and a coach was left to his own devices with a team like the Thunder where Westbrook was having such a demonstrable you know, impact every time he's on the court for everything they're doing, he'd be playing a lot more than you know 35 minutes a night. And so from that standpoint, it almost makes you wonder, like, what would his numbers really be? I mean, it's not inconceivable that he would be at, you know, what, like 34, 12 and 12 or something like that. And it just seems insane, but it's, 
it's a legit possibility if you just play more minutes. This is an insane stat that I think ESPN put this out today that so Westbrook has made 75 shots in what's considered clutch. So I'm assuming they're going to use the NBA. Yeah, they use the NBA definition, which is within five points within five minutes. Westbrook has made 75 shots. 72 of those 75 are unassisted. That is ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, that's why they're going to go out in the first round, though, you know, oh, yeah. or most likely. And so I don't I don't give him credit for that. I mean, it's cool. It's fun to watch, but I don't consider that to be value. Uh, and I go back. I mean, Mike, it's a perfect counterexample. But like if you look at Kevin Durant's play in the clutch this season, he has not shot well at all. If you look at the baskets that he scored, a vast majority are assisted, and that's not a coincidence. And he's had issues. You know, he's definitely made a lot of game winners over the course of his career, but the number one reason why those guys have not won a title is that it's too much pound, it's too much isolation, too much one-on-one late in games. And I think Durant hopefully has found a better way in Golden State, and I'm not sure Westbrook is curious at all about trying to find a better way. And so it's cool. Uh, to me, that's almost a gimmick, though. I mean, that's that's not winning basketball. I think that's proven in, in recent years now more than ever. It's not the best way to play. So, you know, to me, it's like it's eye-popping, but at the same time, it's not positive in his ledger. It's such a weird year. Another thing that's there is that we've had this, you know, we've had a long conversation now, probably, t- you know, 20, 30 minutes, and we've barely talked about defense. And I think that's strangely appropriate in a year where offenses are just going through the roof that, you know, Kawhi is is great on that end. And I would say he's less valuable offensively. So you can argue about that trade-off. But LeBron is clearly the best defender of the guys that I consider the top three, but he hasn't provided that much defensive value this year just because of the way this Cavs season has gone. Yeah, this is a very weird year in terms of offense. I mean, all the numbers are up. And so I I will admit, I kind of factored in defense or the idea of the two-way player uh, a little bit less this year than than I normally might. But you know, to me, it's hard to make a defense first case for anybody besides Kawhi. You know, definitely when you're looking at Cleveland's like overall defensive numbers. So I don't know. I I always struggle to kind of determine how much that should factor it in. You know, it's a good tiebreaker for me. And if if guys are having similar offensive seasons, if one's obviously a better defensive player or more complete player, you know, I will look at that. But especially with the season, like you're saying, with the offense, with the record-setting numbers, to me, that's what's driven. This, the entire philosophy of the game, really. It's space, three-pointers, uh, one-on-one guys you know, taking advantage of you know, more room to work. It's kind of a smarter, a smarter sport than it was five years ago, especially from an offensive strategy perspective. So that's really what I tried to focus on when I was you know, making my MVP picks. Something that is also strange about this year is that there is a team having a historic season, you know, not historic like they're by their own standards, but the Golden State Warriors, because of everything that happened, they're the best team in the league. They're the title favorites and they don't have a legitimate MVP candidate in terms of this top four. Yeah, I was prepared to make Durant, you know, a strong case for him. If he had stayed healthy and had the same numbers all the way through, I I would have been pushing pretty hard to have him in this conversation and, and potentially even making the sort of counterintuitive case for him as the MVP, because I do factor in like historic success, you know, pretty heavily. Like if you're, and if they're leading Houston in offensive efficiency and they have a better record and Durant's even more efficient because of the situation he's been put in, it's really hard for me to say, okay, well, that's not better value. Those kinds of things are really hard to ignore. Uh, his injury took him out of it. I think it was just a little bit too late for Steph to get back into the conversation. So it's kind of an anomaly. It's one of those that people might look back on in 10 years, especially if the Warriors win the title. And I think the Warriors have a, a chance potentially to really make 
pretty quick work of the playoffs if, if Durant's back healthy. Uh, you know, if they do one of these things where they go like, let's say, you know, 16 and two or 16 and three through the playoffs, people are going to be like, well, how the heck did they did not have a single MVP candidate or, or why did they have anybody in the top five for votes? But, you know, it, it to me, it's just bad luck. It's a fluke play. Durant gets his knee landed on him. Uh, it kind of threw that whole narrative to the side. But I don't know about you. I would have had Durant over both Kawhi and LeBron if he had stayed healthy throughout the rest of the season. It would have been close. I, I think that it is a testament to just how stacked the Warriors are that you can make a legitimate argument that, you know, Durant was certainly important in a lot of games. He provided, the way I put it at the time, was the offensive foundation for the Warriors because he was efficient that way. And defensively, the games that he brought it, he was spectacular. I mean, when he when he would really go in that direction. I mean, Draymond was their, was is and was their defensive baseline, and that's why he's pr- probably going to win Defensive Player of the Year, that and a couple other reasons. And... I think that Durant, I can see the argument kind of with the whole Kawhi thing, because while he doesn't have Kawhi's regular defensive impact, he he has kind of the, you could call it the equivalent of the on the offensive end. And then like, like Kawhi, they kind of have the upside on the other end. Like Durant has those great offensive game or defensive games and Kawhi has those great offensive games. And Kawhi's, you know, his usage rate is actually pretty close to LeBron's, which is really impressive considering everything that's going on. So you can see that. And if you're one of those people who believes that offense is more important than defense in terms of individual, you know, like individual contributions, which I am of that mind, then yeah, you can make an argument for Durant there. And LeBron, I think, I still feel like LeBron when he's at it is, is the best player in the league. But he hasn't been that guy most of the season. And I mean, at this point, it's kind of an article of faith that he is going to bring it back. I mean, we do get it for little bits and pieces like that third quarter against the Spurs and a couple of other times, but you can't give LeBron credit for that now when we're not seeing it on the court in terms of his impact on Cleveland's defense. 100%. And they have an award for him. You know, it's called Finals MVP. He's won it a bunch in the past. And his consistency in terms of his impact throughout the playoffs is so much different than the regular season that they should be judged differently. And, you know, I think the the one thing that I feel bad for him, it's not the lost regular season MVPs in years where it was kind of debatable or like a year like this year. And I'd still get more upset that he didn't win the finals MVP in 2015, you know, despite the losing effort. You know, that's the one that kind of grinds my gears. But no, I'm completely with you. Like, it should be all about the 82 games. It shouldn't be about, oh, what is LeBron going to do? Well, in the playoffs that other guys can't do. It shouldn't be about, oh, Westbrook's going to, out in the first round because you know one man approach is going to you know hit a hard wall as soon as they get to the playoffs uh, once he's an underdog and it shouldn't be about oh Harden and D'Antoni all these questions about can they be successful in the postseason and you know, that should not influence this debate. Two different points I want to make before we kind of move off this discussion. One is I have advocated for years, I think publicly for about five, privately for ten that the NBA should give out most valuable and most outstanding. This year, those would actually both be very difficult towards. I would probably give Westbrook most valuable well, I would, uh, and then give Harden most outstanding. I think that's the way that I would split it. And then the second point, and I, I maybe I'm going to ask Tim Bontemps to do this. I would love to see, I don't think they should give this as a formal award because there's too much noise in the, noise in the sample, but see somebody give like a media straw poll of, most valuable, most outstanding, whatever player of the year for the entire year. So from Halloween or whatever the opening night is to the last day of the finals. I think thinking about that award would be so interesting, especially this year. That case could get so confusing and convoluted and fun. I'm with you. I just 
think the, the, the bad side of that would be the recency bias that sure. you get, you know? Yeah, and, and that's why I don't think it should be a formal award like that goes on Hall of Fame criterias or anything like that. It'd just be like an informal, yeah. you know, like, like, that's why I was saying somebody like do it as a straw poll or something like that. Oh, so that we're getting updates along the way? Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I like that. I, I don't know. It's just tricky because, like, when you really think about it, when we're in June, how much are we going to be talking about Westbrook's triple-double? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just, I just LeBron's think it's an interesting thing. And, do or, yeah, yeah. And, what, like, and so I'm just saying that for that award, like, the entire thing, it's going to go to either KD or LeBron, whoever wins the title, right? Like, it and, could go and I'm to, not it saying could that go to it Steph. Or, yeah, KD, Steph, or, or LeBron. I mean, basically one of, the, one, of the, one of the superstars on a title-winning team. And that's one of the things that's really annoying about these conversations is that it's so hard to remember back to how you were feeling in October and November. Uh, it's so hard to not get caught up in the night-to-night horse race aspect of it because, you know, it's, let's be honest, we're oversaturated. I mean, everybody's covering it every single day. Every one of these uh, head-to-head matchups starts to become a prism for this race. Uh, it's very difficult to do. And, I mean, imagine, you know, after last year's, uh, the finals in game seven. It's like, of course it's going to be LeBron for the entire season. Well, did he deserve that or did Steph have the better 82 game sample? You know, that, that's, that's kind of where it, it gets tricky to me in, in yeah. terms of retroactively just basically crowning the champion as the best for the entire, the entire way. Yeah. There would certainly be a risk in it. And I also want to see, I would love to see them do something baseball actually does, but doesn't get much hype for, which is a playoff MVP. So not just the finals, and there'd be a crap ton of recency bias in that as well. Or even maybe not a maybe not a final a playoff MVP, but like an all playoffs first team and maybe second team. I think that would be really interesting to do as well. No, I'm on board with that one for sure because a lot of performances just get forgotten, you know. And especially like you know, especially if your team gets eliminated in the second round. Like there were some really good Thunder teams that, that didn't get out of the second round because of injuries or whatever. And so a guy like Durant just gets overlooked from the discussion of that season. Or like Chris, uh, I mean, Chris, Chris, Paul seri- Chris Paul series against the Spurs is another one of those. I would even argue Perfect. Yes. that Clay in that end of the Rocket series, beginning of the Thunder, uh, beginning of the Blazers series. Like to me, he was the MVP of the first two rounds of the playoffs, which was one of the most shocking things that happened last year. Absolutely. That's a great one. I mean, and Draymond was huge when Steph was out last year, too. And then he's the goat of the whole thing because of the suspension. So, yes, I like the idea of all playoff teams. Maybe that's just something that we should start online and see if it picks up. You know, maybe you should just like hand out your all playoff team awards like like right before the, the last game of the finals this year. And maybe it will it will catch on before Ben and I move on from the MVP conversation. I want to take a quick moment to tell you about SeatGeek. SeatGeek has been a sponsor for us for a while, but I've also been a a user of SeatGeek for a lot longer than that. It is my personal place for that I go to to buy and sell tickets. I use it to sell tickets quite a bit. And the reason why is because it accomplishes a couple of really big things in the same site, which is something that you always want for making purchases, either big or small. And one is that they're an aggregator. So you don't have to go to multiple ticket sites. You don't have to try a lot of that kind of stuff. You can just look in one place and you don't have to worry about missing out. And also because they give everything a deal score, you can feel confident that you're getting the right ticket for the right price. And also that they're filtering through it really well. I've gone to a lot of the venues that I've used SeatGeek for, and I 
really have been impressed with their deal score and with their ratings and everything like that. So basically what it does, if you think those about those two things together, is that it really does save you time because you only have to go to one place, you can look at the top stuff, and while they can't say, hey, buy these tickets in you know, the 10th row or buy these in the upper deck because it depends on what your own personal preferences are, it gives you a good universe of the right things to look for so you don't have to spend all that time agonizing and all that time looking. So you can check out SeatGeek. Their app is free. You can download it, and it's S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K. And then under the settings tab, there's an enter a promo code option. If you enter the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, like this show and the site that I write for, then they will give you $20 as a rebate on your first purchase. So you enter the promo code, and then whenever you buy whatever it is, if it's a ticket to a sporting event, it's a ticket to a concert, theater, and they'll just give you $20. So you get to use a great app that I've been using for a while. You get to support the show. And you get twenty free dollars. It's awesome. So again, the promo code is Real GM R E A L G M. Okay, so you talked a little bit about kind of the Warriors thing, and before we get into because you looked dug into some interesting stats with it before the season, and I felt like an idiot for this for a vast majority of this season. I posited I didn't say it was like a promise or a guarantee, but I, I was open about the idea that the Warriors could lose five or fewer games in the playoffs, and I still think that might be a heavy lift but I'm starting to think it's more possible than I did before. I think it's more possible. And I was at the, the gym last night watching the Clippers and the Wizards and the buzz around the gym kind of caught me off guard. It was funny. Everyone was like, this is going to be a quick playoffs, isn't it? Like this is going to go down very quickly. And I think some of that is just the fear mongering about the Cavaliers right now. I think some of it was just the nature of seeing the, the Warriors dig out of that huge deficit against San Antonio and just come back to win by double digits without Kevin Durant. And it's also, I think, accumulated the idea that like the Clippers, Rockets, and Thunder are all like little brothers to the Warriors right now. I mean, they really don't have any shot whatsoever uh, in a series based on how one-sided all of those matchups have been that, uh, you know, I could see why your original prediction started to look pretty good. I mean, I, I can definitely see it. Here's a couple of things for context. So I went back to basically 96, you know, the 96 Bulls. And what I looked at was, which teams have been the biggest sort of front runners in terms of, or like the heaviest favorites, right? So what I did was I looked at regular season point differential for the best team, compared it to the second best team, and then just see like how, who has the biggest gap, right? Uh, the 96 Bulls ha- had a point differential that was 4.5 points better than any other team in the league. The, the Warriors, this year's Warriors, have a, a gap of 3.7, which is bigger than every other team since those 96 Bulls. So that includes the 2015 Warriors, uh, which were heavy favorites during that regular season. That includes the 2008 Celtics. That includes the 2000 Lakers. That includes the 97 Bulls. That includes the 2001 Spurs. So uh, a lot of these teams are title-winning teams that I just mentioned. And the Warriors have like a significantly bigger gap over the field than any of those teams did. And by the way, San Antonio is really, really, really good this year. And if the Warriors didn't exist, they would have one of the better point differentials we've seen in a while. So that leads me to believe that we're kind of back in this familiar place we've been. Uh, and maybe everybody's still scarred by the, you know, the blown three, one lead, but the Warriors should really be considered to be on this gigantic pedestal entering the postseason. I'm not sure what the, the feeling is in the Bay area. If, if people are sort of back to that place and that's all where we all were for the entirety of you know the last regular season and, and even the previous regular season for most of it as well. Uh, but these guys are on their own plane. And I think that you know the top tiers right now is basically Golden State 1, San Antonio 2. If you want to put Cleveland 3, 
uh, or if you want to throw a couple other teams in that mix, I don't know how, how you're feeling about Boston or Houston or, or whoever, but to me, the top tier at this point is, is a one-team tier. Yeah, I think that it is as well, and I would say that just because of their ceiling, that Cleveland is actually the biggest threat to the Warriors of anybody else, because San Antonio is a wonderful team, but they have specific structural deficiencies, and so what I've the takeaway that I've had, and I think that you talked about the feeling in the Bay Area, I haven't talked to too many people today, but I'm guessing the last two days have shifted it dramatically because the you know the Warriors did have a nice win against the Rockets in Houston after the overtime loss, but you know that wasn't that wasn't one of those galvanizing definitive games. They were they were better for a large portion of the game on on that was Tuesday, and then Wednesday you know they sucked in the first quarter. Spurs played great, and then they annihilated San Antonio for three quarters. So the final score, you know, the final score was an 11 or 12 point win, but I think it was like 90 to 63 in the last three quarters. And that's just appalling. And San Antonio has some of those deficiencies. And so the place that I've gotten to with this is actually very similar to where I feel about the Cavs in the Eastern Conference, which is there are a lot of great teams. They deserve immense credit for what they've done. But I think that a lot of the best teams are specifically ill-suited to facing the Warriors within their conference. So the Spurs, you know, I, I worry about their offense, the Rockets, the Warriors have a good job, uh, do a good job of handling Harden, and then, you know, the Warriors' offense is going to be a bear for the Rockets. And then if it's the Clippers, I mean, in many ways, the best thing that could happen to the Warriors, assuming they get the one seed, which is how likelier now than it was yesterday, is that, that they would root for the Clippers to get the four because I think the Jazz are a more challenging matchup for them than the Clippers. They're a trickier matchup, and I think that they don't have just like the ingrained mental advantage they definitely have against the Clippers. Yeah, and, and that's why we come back to, you know, it's 16-5 and five or 16-3 and three going through the playoffs possible. You know, I, I definitely think it's possible. A couple other fast points on the Warriors. You know, they've got the best point differential right now since the 97 Bulls. So better than last year's 73-win team, which is crazy to think about. The highest offensive rating since the 92 Bulls. It's one of the top five offenses of all time. The most assists since the Showtime Lakers, and they were gunning for that assist record. Looks like they're going to fall just a little bit short, but still they've been just ridiculous in terms of their ball movement and, and commitment to their system. And then they have the highest effective field goal percentage of the three-point era. And right now that's tied with last year's Warriors as well. So the question becomes, who is going to stop this machine? You know, And all of these teams, like you've mentioned, either have defensive problems, matchup issues, or in, in some cases they started to play more like the Warriors where it's spreading out, you know, really heavy reliance on the three-pointers and just kind of uh, succumbing to life in a shootout. And I think that what we saw, especially in that Houston game, like, it's just not going to work. Like, you, you can't outshoot, you know, you, you can't shoot out these guys and expect to win. And I think, you know, one reason why Cleveland's defensive issues kind of loom large, to me, they can still blow anybody off the court in the Eastern Conference. But if they don't have the ability to have the type of defensive impact they had, especially late in that final series, and especially when they were at home in that final series, I'm not sure, you know, why we should expect anything besides, you know, a pretty one-sided series in favor of Golden State. You know, I, I think these guys have proven they can do it on such a high level, even without Durant, especially lately, that, you know, if I'm a Cleveland fan, you know, I'm getting real nervous about that matchup. I think this is going to surprise people, but when you were talking, I, I was thinking back to uh, 
Jay-Z has a line in Never Let Me Down about everyone want to be Hope, but Hope's still alive. And I think that's what this Warriors team is, is that people are trying to do what they're doing. And to their credit, I mean, Houston has gotten to a different level, but nobody can reach that level because they don't have their talent. I think the the biggest difference, as, as great as Curry and Durant are, the, the kind of the runestone in figuring this out is actually Draymond Green, because no other team has a guy like him who makes these five-out lineups not only good offensively, but actually functional and elite defensively. Exactly. I mean, if Tristan Thompson or Clint Capella could shoot three-pointers, uh, I would feel much more comfortable about those teams uh, in their matchup uh, with Golden State, you know? But when you have to have a guy on the court who's not going to have that that level of stretch to his game, or you have to have other guys who can do those things, but they can't protect the, the rim uh, or rebound like Draymond, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, you've got to make choices that Golden State just doesn't have to make. So, you know, Doc Rivers was actually talking about the Clippers last night. He was saying that their whole mantra right now is he's basically coaching them. He's not even like talking about the opposition. It's all about what can they do. And they've kind of struggled for consistency. And when they've looked good, and they've looked pretty good, especially like they did against uh, Washington. The offense looked really good last night. But the Warriors are the ultimate example of that. They're the team that can beat themselves. I mean, that we saw in last year's finals. We know that injuries could potentially you know, take them away from who they're capable of becoming. But I think if we're talking just pure basketball, everybody's healthy. They're on the court. Uh, the only team that can really stop them is themselves. I was going to go in a different direction, and we'll do that after this, but two other points in terms of the Warriors having this really strong regular season. One is they've missed Kevin Durant for the last 15 games, and of course one of those games is also just sitting everyone against the Spurs. But also, there is a massive difference for most of this season between the the day-to-day intensity that the Warriors were playing with this year as opposed to last year. Last year, I think partially because of the way that their title year was slighted in many ways, but also just because of their incredible continuity, they came out not only the win streak, but just the way they were playing and they were just killing people and they wanted to win every game. That's really what 73 and nine came out of. And then this year they had this big takeaway and nobody's really, I think, said it publicly. Maybe Clay Thompson did. Actually, when I was working on the book, found some quotes, which I was not mean enough to include in the book when they won their 73rd game about how this doesn't mean anything if we don't win the title. And then, you know, that ends up happening. And I think one of the things that they took away from that was why were we going so nuts after every single thing in the regular season? And so they took that mentality and they had some lax games. They had some moments. There was this great quote that Kerr had, which I I used on a a podcast episode, have it in in a piece as well about how, you know, basically like when we're not trying our best, we need to at least like not beat ourselves. And so it's kind of a different level of awareness of like, oh yeah, then like we need to be at our best all the time. So you have all that as just kind of this underlying factor with this team that I think has largely gone by the wayside the last week or so when they've actually been especially making statement games against this, the Spurs and the Rockets. But you think about that in the context of this historic year that they weren't trying for this this time, at least not until the last week or so. Yeah, I mean, when I watched the Warriors a lot earlier in the season when they had Durant, I had the same feelings that I get when I watch USA basketball. It's not like marveling over what they're doing. It's just that like the talent level is so wide. That, you know, their gap is is so wide against the average opponent that you just find yourself in this constant state of like nitpicking or being frustrated when they're only playing at like a seven or an eight instead of a ten because you know that they've got so much uh, more potential in them. And managing that so that you're not on that 10 every single night is a smart thing. And Kerr seems to do that very well. And certainly he's not running up this guy's minutes. And, and that's like a natural limiting factor there. But yeah, like I, there wasn't ever really a time during the season when they were at full strength where 
aside from a few late game issues, you know, where Durant was, you know, maybe freelancing a little bit too much or, uh, you know, some of the blowups that they had, there wasn't a real crisis moment where I was like, oh boy, like, you know, these guys have some like major flaw that's going to come back and bite them. If anything, you know, constant bout, uh, you know, occasional bouts of uh, complacency and then just the frustration of knowing that like anytime these guys aren't playing as well as they can, it's very noticeable. And I think, you know, we're going to see in the playoffs, can they ramp that back up? I mean, if they really want to make this statement playoffs, if they're really trying to turn this into a situation where they're making this almost like a revenge mission for last year, or they're getting their redemption, they have the horses to do it and they have the horses to bury teams. And we'll be able to tell pretty quick if that's their approach. Something that people who are interested in where this is going to go should watch is if Draymond can hold off getting technicals and flagrants in the first two rounds of the playoffs, because that would indicate to me that they're playing the long game. And so I wrote this piece when he got suspended for game five of the finals about how a lot of people are going to focus on the Steven Adams play, but really what was the, the linchpin of that whole thing and what burned Draymond was a completely stupid flagrant foul he got in the Rocket series where he basically tackled Michael Beasley when a game was already over. And it was to try to save a play. It was it was the proper call to give him that. And because it was on cumulative, it was a cumulative thing because he wasn't suspended from that Rocket from that Thunder game. Those sorts of things matter. And if he's looking at the long scale of it and saying, you know, basically, if I keep it that way, but that doesn't sound like Draymond Green at all to me. So I don't think that's going to happen. But if he does, if he gets through those first two rounds clean, then I'll say, okay, this is a very different thing. For sure. And here's another interesting thing with the Warriors playoff run that, you know, it hasn't fully crystallized yet, but let's just say they get the Blazers, right? And you can look at that two different ways. I mean, one, you can say that's a dangerous team who they haven't really played because, you know, it's been different since the, you know, the trade deadline. They've got a lot of positive momentum. I think since March 1st, if you look at net rating, Golden State's one and the Blazers are two right now. So that's not your typical eight seed. They have a pretty strong argument that they're better than their record. So you can make one case that says, oh, Golden State uh, would kind of be getting screwed if they play the Blazers because this would be a tougher advantage, uh, a tougher matchup than usual. But I think you can make the counter argument, which is you know, Golden State doesn't want to be like slowly ramping up. They don't want to. They 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 kind of need that shock to the system, right? Like to make sure that they get into their, their playoff mindset. Playing a team that is better than its seed early on would be the best method for Golden State to kind of get up to speed, you know, to kind of get them straight into sixth gear. And, uh, you know, Portland's got a pretty pretty good offense, you know, kind of get Golden State, you know, push them a little bit in some shootouts. They've got a good home court advantage. So, I mean, all this talk about who's going to try to duck who in the playoff races and whatever, you know, you could make a case that the Blazers would be the best thing to kind of happen for Golden State from a from a psychological standpoint or a preparation standpoint. Well, yeah, like two weeks ago, I did a podcast for Locked On Warriors where I posited the idea that in many ways it was more dangerous to face the team that got the eight than the seven because the team that got the eight was winning their way there and the team that got the seven is going to be losing their way there because what happened is you had this huge boost at the beginning of the season for seven teams. They were playing really, really well. They had all that that happened. And then inevitably, you know, and then there were teams that sucked. And that's what created the gulf that made it so that, you know, seven teams had a 99% chance of making the playoffs like a month ago. You know, like that, that was a very different thing than most years. And my logic was a lot of the early part of that, why banking wins is important is because it secures you a spot in the dance, but it doesn't necessarily relate to how good you are at the end of the season. And so the logic then at that time was, you know, the team that wins the 
probably it was going to be the the Nuggets and the and the Blazers. But I'm like, if somebody else jumps past them, that means they were killing it. Too. They were killing it even more. Is that that team was going to be on a better run? It's kind of like that team that surges into the into the NFL playoffs and then wins. It's a lot different in a single elimination than in a seven game series. But that sort of same logic. But there's a fundamental difference with the Blazers, and I think they're a great team, but in terms of of being a favorable matchup for the Warriors is that they don't do as much of the grabbing and pulling of Stephen Curry as the Grizzlies do. And like, I feel like there's a, it's a less physically demanding series in terms of like, not necessarily risk of injury, but just bumps and bruises that can really accumulate over playoffs over facing Memphis or maybe even Oklahoma City. So it might be harder fought. But it's going to be like when two two technical boxers fight, as opposed to when two guys who just throw haymakers the whole time. And so, even if even if it's a longer, like if it's a twelve round fight, as opposed to being like a ten round, they're still going to come out of it with less with less damage taken. That's a great point. They also don't have anybody who can really punish Durant. You know, like their power forwards. Like if they if Golden State wants to go small, they don't really have someone who's going to make you know. Like, going to really like hurt him physically, and they don't have a great defensive matchup for him on the other end in terms of like he can get any shot he wants against the Blazers, you know, basically at will. So it is kind of a good tune-up that way. But I also think like you know Portland, they're not going to just roll over. Oh you know? hell I no! Think, like a like a team like Denver, I could see finger pointing. I could see getting blown off the court in Game One and just that being the entire series. And so I think from that standpoint, again, maybe your your points about Memphis are excellent. They they do have a mental advantage over Oklahoma City. Like if somehow they caught Oklahoma City in the first round, which it doesn't look like it's going to happen, I, I could see them welcoming that matchup as well. But you know, I think Portland, you know, it's it's a known opponent. Uh, in terms of style of play and like they have positional matchups basically across the board. I think it'd be a good way for, for Curry to, to get through clean, like you're saying, and also get Durant back up to speed as well, uh, but still get pushed a little bit. So I don't know. I'm kind of looking forward to that series. I, I hope we're not jinxing it here. I hope it doesn't like fall apart after we have this podcast. Yeah, it's entirely possible that it, that it could, but so you also have the really fun intellectual dynamic of what happens with Yusuf Nurkic. So Nurkic is fueling the awesome high pick and roll that the, that the Blazers are doing, which causes problems for everybody. And they deserve immense amounts of credit for that. He's a good screener. He sets, he's active with that. He's a big dude. Uh, And so you have that element of it. And, you know, he's a beast on the offensive glass. So those are both things that the Warriors can sometimes have trouble with. And so my question in the series is going to be, if it happens, how quickly is Steve Kerr going to go to his more silver bullet type thing? So that's Draymond at center and playing Clay. And you might even want to put Iguodala, depending on how you bounce all of those guys around with Nurkic. So you negate a lot of the benefits of their high pick and roll if you have Draymond on one side and like Clay on the other. Because, yeah, Clay's going to get smoked if he gets Nurkic, if he can get that quick seal. But Lillard's not going to get the space for a shot. This isn't like when he's when he absolutely demolished the Miami Heat because, you know, Hassan Whiteside stays back on everything. It will be a fundamentally different approach. But Kerr has been reluctant to use a lot of that kind of stuff because it puts a lot more wear and tear on his guys. And doing so in the first round is a little bit dangerous because you're going through the entire playoffs with the expectation that you're going to have to win 16 games. So when they make those shifts is going to be important. But at the same time, the Warriors have a very good idea at this point of how to defend Portland. It's part of the reason why they've been so good against Oklahoma City this year is that once the Warriors have a playoff series against the team, 
generally they figure out what makes them tick. This is, I think, Ron Adams is a big, big part of this. They figure out what makes them tick, and even if that team has structural changes, you see the lessons in the regular season, and there's no greater example of this than the way they defend James Harden. Yeah, they've got him pretty much figured out. Yeah, I mean, Nurkic, is, it's fascinating because like his you know, potential issues in terms of like you know covering ground, like you're mentioning, but also turnover issues and foul issues, I mean, all of those are things that you can kind of get by with a lot of times against a lot of teams, but the Warriors are uniquely equipped to exploit, right? You, you, know you want mean? to know what I would do with the Warriors rotation against, the, against them? What's that? Start David West and play him like five minutes, then pull him and bring in, and then, then go to Draymond at center for a few minutes while Nurkic is still on the floor, then bring in whoever, you know, Pachulia, JaVale, whoever you want, to be the center for that part. And then, you know, probably give David West some second quarter minutes, because what that does is it takes Portland it takes Portland out of their defense instantly. Like, West is feeling his mid-range jumper right now, and West is burly enough that they're not that Portland's not going to do a lot of their bully ball stuff in the same way. I think that could really work. I also completely don't think Kerr's going to do it. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the last the last series was interesting because it did seem like when they played last year that there was almost like different sections of it. And of course, you know, Steph kind of changed everything. But you know, people forget before Steph came back, like that was that was a competitive series. You know, Portland didn't roll over. No, uh, but I don't know. I mean, if you had to make a pick right now, what would you pick for that series in the first round? Warriors in five or six, because the Durant's a big question mark in that, and the Portland is really good. Like, the, I would have them as like a serious threat to anybody else. But I think the Warriors are special. Like, if the Spurs get the one seed, I could imagine that series going six or seven. But that's my point. Is like that is a crazy place to be when the eight seed is potentially going to be under five hundred, and the one seed, as I was mentioning earlier, is kind of like the most dominant team relative to the rest of the league since the 96 Bulls. So the fact that we're not penciling in a sweep right off the bat is a huge credit to Portland. I think you're right. I mean, it could go six. I'd probably settle on five, but yeah, I mean, it it could be a really, really fun. It could be what everybody thought the Pelicans Warriors series was supposed to be a few years ago, which was fun, but not that great. This one could actually be a higher entertainment value. So something you said earlier that I thought was interesting about the idea of whether this could be a quick playoffs. I th- I disagree with that, but not necessarily in the West. I disagree with it in the East. I think the East is just going to be a law, lo- a series of long runs going into each other. And I still expect Cleveland to come out of it, but I think we're going to see at least one or close to it, seven game series in each round for somebody. Yeah, I can see that. I, yeah, the, the comment that I was making was in complete reference to this, the Warriors being able to yeah. smoke everybody. Uh, That's possible. In terms of the in terms of the ease, it's so hard to break down. I've never been this frustrated. Where like basically every single matchup is completely up in the air, and it's going to be up in the air for a while here. Like every time you try to construct a path for like here's who Cleveland's going to play or who's like their potential like worst case scenario or best case scenario, it just completely flips in like two days. So. Now, that is a sign that there could be some upset potential. I think the Bucks have a chance to, to push a team deep uh, in the first round for sure. I think, you know, if it comes down to like Celtics versus Wizards, Raptors versus Celtics, whichever, you know, that series kind of breaks in the, in the second round, I think it's going to be a complete bloodbath. Uh, blood uh, and then I guess my real question is, who can push Cleveland? Who can really do it? And I, I'm still kind of coming up empty on that conversation. Uh, every once in a while, I want to talk myself into this team or that team. Uh, but I'm generally defaulting to this idea that, you know, once Cleveland locks in and can play the matchup game, once LeBron has his nights off for rest, 
Uh, once everybody's focused, once they kind of trim some of the fat out of their rotation, I think they're going to still be on a, on a different playing field. And here's an interesting stat, too. I went back through basically this entire run for LeBron's final, so back to 2011. And if you look at po- uh, point differential for the Wizards, Celtics, uh, and Raptors this year, LeBron has actually faced 10 playoff opponents who have a better point differential during the course of that run than any of the three teams he's got to deal with here in the East. And I think against those top 10 teams, he's 8-2 and two in the playoffs. The only teams uh, that were better, the Spurs beat him in the finals and the Warriors who beat him in the finals as well. So, I mean, basically, you can make a pretty compelling case that like this year's crop of contenders in the East is not as good as teams that LeBron's already taken apart in previous postseason runs. Um, and so from that standpoint, and that provides me a little a, a measure of calm here uh, during some of the recent panic about their defense. It's like if he could take out the Celtics, if he could take out the Pacers when they were, uh, you know, pretty dominant, if he could take, you know, make really easy work of the, the 60 win Hawks, you know, there were some injury issues there, obviously, then I have a hard time getting too concerned about any of these other teams. I think they're all really good, but I'm just not sure there's a great team in that mix. There also is not a team that has great talent to face off against Cleveland, so the Wizards have John Wall, who's great, but they don't have anybody to defend LeBron James, and that's a major problem. And they're also going to be putting, you know, Markeith Morris probably will be spending serious time on Kevin Love. That's a big problem. Big, big problem. And <laughs> and Cleveland can just kind of sit guys on certain spots, you know, and they don't have to help as much. I think that'll work out well. To me, the the best chance of those three, if they can get to full strength, which is as big an if as there really is, is Toronto. Because what Toronto has is they have rim protectors, they have athleticism, they're actually at their best, and we haven't seen that at all. Their their defense is kind of could be a kind of a bizarro version of what Oklahoma City did last year to the Warriors and caused them so much trouble of blitzing, making sure they can't get much at the basket, and then just staying consistent on the perimeter. I mean, DeMar DeRozan is shaky on that way, but that requires Kyle Lowry being 100%, because if Lowry is less than that, their offense is not going to be good enough to allow their defense to get set enough to do that. Yeah, and I think that at full strength, this year's Raptors are definitely better than last year's Raptors. So you can, you can kind of make that argument. And, you know, they weren't humiliated in that Eastern Conference Finals. You know, I, it wasn't the best series, but there was competitive moments. But, yeah, still, I mean, that's kind of some mental stretching. And we got to see Toronto get there, you know. I mean, if they wind up in that... Uh, four seed, you know, they're going to get pushed potentially by Milwaukee pretty hard. I mean, that could be a real, uh, you know, what you're talking about, you know, seven game series. I mean, it, it could be a situation where you know, Toronto is going through, you know, two or three, uh, you know, two seven game series just to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, Cleveland maybe has a lighter load, uh, you know, depending on how it breaks or if they, they face off in the second round, that wouldn't happen. But I don't know. I guess even in a, a best case scenario for the Raptors, I have a hard time believing they're going to be able to to slow down Cleveland. Here's a kind of abstract question for you, but I think you'll enjoy it. So it looks like the top four teams are pretty well settled in the East. And then the bottom, it'll be four of probably five teams. So Celtics, I was going to say Celtic, Celtics, Cavs, Wizards, Raptors on the top, Bucks, Hawks, Heat, Pacers, Bulls on the bottom. Putting those together for a playoff series... Which combination do you think, which combination would you most want to see? I understand the Bulls are going to be in prime position to kind of like jump back up into this, but I don't really feel like they want to be there. I hope not. And so I think my hope is that, first of all, my hope is that the teams who don't want to be there, and I think to me it's very clearly like the Bulls and the Pistons like definitely don't want to be there. 
I hope they're both on the outside looking in. You know, in terms of the first round matchups, I guess selfishly, I want to see if Milwaukee can really do this. So I want them to get the the five seed to just have, you know, whatever is the weakest uh, opponent remaining. So they have the best shot and upset potential. Uh, I think my dream world would be Milwaukee steals a first round series and then pushes Cleveland in a second round series. And we really get a lot of Giannis postseason discussion because I feel like the hype that was there for him earlier this year has cooled a little bit. And I think he's still one of the best stories in the league. So I would love to have him get that that big showcase, you know, LeBron versus Giannis. Everybody starts to talk about how, you know, Giannis is the future of the Eastern Conference. You know, I think that would be a lot of fun. And I'm I'm willing to sacrifice, by the way, the Deion Waiters versus Cavaliers revenge match to get that. You know, that, that's fine by me. You know, I want Atlanta out as soon as possible. So, you know, if that, you know, I'm not sure who would have the best chance of just kind of thumping them. You know, I guess maybe... Maybe it'd be Washington. Uh, so, you know, maybe I'd like to have that matchup. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I think from a storyline perspective, if we could get the Celtics and Pacers 2-7 so that, you know, Paul George gets a taste of, you know, a potential you know future landing spot and we can really get those rumors going, uh, I'd love that because, you know, to me, like, that ship has kind of sailed. You know, I, I'm not sure how this is ever really going to work with Paul George in Indiana, and I think it's better – that he realizes that I mean, his just frustrated quotes just come out constantly. And so I think, you know, if, if he can kind of, you know, see a team on the rise, see what could have been with some of those, you know, mid season trade discussions, uh, and then, you know, turn in a value and effort in defeat, that that's probably the best method for him to move on from the Pacers that we could hope for. So I'd like that. I'm not sure if I've actually matched up these quite properly, but those are some of my initial thoughts. Those are all interesting. A couple more that I want to add. Pacers Cavs just to see how close Paul George is to what we thought he was going to be. I think that's an interesting one. And also, I'm a big Miles Turner believer, and that would be a great showcase to kind of see where he is at this point against Tristan to see how all that's going to work. I would enjoy that. I would love Bucks Cavs in any round. I don't really care where it is. I don't know how that. Ha- I mean, I guess they could fall off and lose a couple of games off their expectations and 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 fall into that, whether it be a a two seven or probably not a one eight, but possibly and. The other one for me is I just want to I want to see Raptors Cavs. It's not going to happen in the first round. Second round, my my ideal would actually I guess be Pacers Pacers Cavs in the first round, then Bucks Cavs in the second, and then Raptors Cavs in the finals. I think that would be fantastic. And anything that allows that to happen, I'm fine with. So or or you can switch the order around a little bit, but just just to make that happen. And then in anything that facilitates the Celtics Wizards second round series, I'm on board. I don't really care what needs to happen. I just want the funeral. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And in the East, you can get that drama. Now Cleveland is making some drama involving them, but I'm, I also want as much fun as I can outside of Cleveland's part of the bracket in case they end up running roughshod through it. Yeah, and I think the most fun definitely would be Celtics-Wizards grudge match. I mean, no question. And then I think, yeah, and then, and then the next most fun thing after that is keeping Giannis around for as long as possible. So uh, I think our, I think what we should be rooting for is Raptors, Bucks, four or five. But then that kind of screws your plan because then the Cavaliers only get one of those two teams. But but, but that uh, ensures that they're going to get one of them, which is also kind of good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm worried that the Cavaliers-Pacers situation would wind up getting depressing really quick, like for Paul George. But which that, again, which is know, a good thing push, in some that ways. That could push him out. Yeah, I mean that, yeah. that's that's to me. Like, well, yeah, we could talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think the Paul George situation is far more compelling to me than what the Hawks have been dealing with with Horford and Millsap. 
Because with Horford and Millsap, you know, there was always the possibility that they were going to leave. But Paul George, he's going to have to get back to the level where he was, you know, an unquestioned all-NBA guy. Like, that, if he can get back there, that would be really special and fun. But if he basically, you know, says, I'm not coming back, or even is not non-committal about returning, which is what I think is more likely to happen, how Larry Bird reacts to that will actually shape the course of the league. Because while Paul George is not an MVP candidate, probably, he is that next next level guy, and he is one of the best second guys that could actually become a second guy because of what Boston's doing, and theoretically, if we're going to go crazy with what LA can do just because if they get him without giving up any assets, then that's that, that allows them to be a lot better. Yeah, I, I think what's important to keep in mind about the Pacer situation is I don't think Larry Bird will find himself in a position where he's just waiting and hoping that he can re-sign Paul George sometime down the line. And I don't think he's going to wind up in a situation where he's got a fully disgruntled star going through an entire season. I think he would much rather just conduct the auction, bite the bullet of, okay, we had to move on from our star player who people liked and just move forward with guys who want to be there. Uh, And I think, unfortunately... If they go out in round one quickly, like we're kind of expecting, I think it's going to kind of come to a head with Paul George, where we usually always make the like pros and cons list for these superstars in terms of do they want to stay, do they want to go. I'm struggling to find what you would even put in the pro con column for Paul George to stay in Indiana. Like what's keeping him there? I mean, and everyone points to if he can get this major designated max, you know, that's definitely uh, a possibility. But let's say he can't. What are his other reasons for wanting to go there? They just had coaching change that hasn't been great. The core players don't really seem to accentuate him that well. They're incredibly inconsistent and frustrating night to night in terms of you know what they're doing. Uh, is he really growing and improving as a player like we expected? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, is it a, a marquee market? Not really. Uh, he just finally got his own shoe deal. I mean, that took quite a while. And their ability to add and you know players who can help him compete for a title is basically non-existent. You know, I just don't see that happening here uh, this summer or on a, a short timeline. And they've also tried, like they've made a lot of trades and a lot of moves to try to you know flip things up around him to to make forward progress, and they just haven't done it. So that's a lot of cons. You know, uh, those are a lot of things working against the Pacers. And you know, loyalty factor is necessarily going to be there for sure. You know, a lot of times guys you know feel an obligation to stay, but if I'm him. I don't know. Like this has started to really swing against the Pacers, uh, I think, over the last six months or so. You know, the other way that it could really swing against the Pacers if Kevin Durant wins a title, because yeah, and then because he's now Paul like, like I, haven't, have you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it, it, I notice it just game to game. It looks like Durant is just really happy this year. Like he's enjoying himself. He's he's having a good time, and so maybe he'll be to Paul George be like, "See, look, yeah, people are going to be pissed at you, but it, it's you know that little bit of scorn." And you get all the other benefits. Um, you get all the other benefits of being on a good team, being on a title contender. And, you know, it, it's a obviously different circumstance, but fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, like, Shaq just got a statue here at Staples Center, right? And, you know, he jumped ship. And, you know, I'm sure they still love him in Orlando. But when he was talking about the best moments of his career, his biggest successes, it was the three-peat, you know, with the Lakers and, you know, being on that stage and, uh, having teammates that could help him do it. It wasn't necessarily the fun, but kind of rocky uh, early years uh, with Orlando where they're still trying to kind of figure things out. And, you know, I, I just kind of go back to like, you know, if you're really trying to make the case for Paul George should stay in Indiana, like what are you basing that on? And I just kind of keep coming up empty on that. And, you know, I look at like 
how are things working with him and Teague? Are they going to pay Teague? You know, all these other guards, you know, they, are they really committed if they're just going to save the money, uh, you know, with their recent moves, kind of cutting uh, a guy right before the playoffs? I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of hard. You know, if I'm Paul George, I'm, I'm asking myself every day, is this really the best opportunity for me to compete for a title uh, this season and in the next five years? And I'm kind of coming back with the same answer over and over, which is no. I'm largely of the same mind. And the Nate McMillan hire is a good point to bring up because it just, it was so tone deaf with a lot of what they were looking to do. And, you know, they fired Frank Vogel and didn't really hire him with some, something that was an inspired choice that would give confidence. And you brought up Jeff Teague. Nate and I actually riffed on this a little bit on Dunked On and because we did this like random player thing. And I went in a direction, he asked me about Jeff Teague, where I would want to make a decision on Paul George before I made a decision on Jeff Teague, because if they're going to trade Paul George, they should not re-sign Jeff Teague. Yeah, uh, I think that all major decisions this summer for them will be made after they decide whether or not to keep Paul George. And I'm pretty firmly of the mind that like, if they're getting the brush off treatment, you know, kind of like frustration or like if his exit interview, you know, he he comes out and he sounds pretty upset after the way the season goes down and he's not really making a lot of overtures, even publicly to like, you know, building something long-term in Indiana. uh, I think Larry Bird will not hesitate. I think he's going to pull the trigger. Where do you want to see him next? I'm selfish, and I want everybody to team up for the Lakers so that I have a reason to go to their games. So, you know, take him out of it. I mean, I thought the the Celtics scenario made a ton of sense, uh, both for him and Butler. And then hearing the, the possibility they could have gotten both those guys is, you know, kind of mind-blowing. Wait, what? I haven't heard this. Oh, you, you know, oh there, there was like the, the Cavs GM said that there was a moment where he thought that the Celtics were potentially going to be able to add both Paul George and Jimmy Butler at the trade deadline. You didn't hear that? Oh my God. That Oh, was that on, was that on the podcast he did with Zach Lowe? Yeah, exactly. I didn't hear it. Oh my, I, I've been busy. <laughs> but, yeah, no. So like, I mean, that, that would have been insane. And that would have, I would be really worried if I was the Cavaliers had that happen. But I think just in general, like, any star should be looking at Boston if he wants to compete for titles for the next five years. I mean, the way that they're set up, even though they have questions like, what do you do with Isaiah? You know, how long can Horford, you know, be an impact guy? I mean, they're just really in a nice spot and they've got great alignment with their front office, their coaching staff, uh, their key players. I mean, they have all the kinds of things you want uh, from sort of like a, you know, an A-list organization. So I'd start my list with the Celtics. And then, you know, for guys who are more concerned about off-court stuff or being sort of like the Russell Westbrook version of a high-profile team, you know, I, I think the Lakers are still kind of sitting there as, uh, you know, a potential backup if, if people are looking for that. But I don't know. Who, who else do you see as, as possible landing spots for him? I would love to see what he would do in Miami. Because yeah, that's another one I thought about too. For they sure, would, he would fit in really well with kind of what they with what Spo what Spo wants to do. I think that as a, a like a chemistry piece on the basketball court, I can't say off the court, that he would mesh well with Dragic and with Hassan Whiteside. I think the three of those guys together would be really good. And while Miami does a great job of kind of pulling these depth wings. And, you know, getting Ronnie Magruder, immense credit for them for for finding him and doing that. You know, Tyler Johnson, Josh Richardson. It's very hard to get a guy who can be kind of more a little bit bigger than that. You know, be a clear cut starter, second or third best player on a championship contender. So they would be a nice fit. And for Boston, a lot of like the way that you have to think about what you want there is how you know, you, there's a lot of imputing about how you would GM. Cause like, I think about the idea of man, it would be so cool if they could get another free agent there and then coalesce the remaining assets into single guys. But we haven't seen them do that yet. 
you know, so like, I, I know exactly where I would be going. Like if I were running that team and it's different than what Danny Ainge is going to do, but a lot of it is also about opportunity. And so like, I think about a big difference between now and a year ago is that I have this stat that I fall back on a lot about how, you know, the, the last non-Pistons team to win a title without a player who had already won an MVP award. It was Larry Bird's first title because he hadn't won an MVP yet. He won it like a year or two later. There aren't that many MVP caliber guys that are hitting for agency and we think are going to change teams. So when you move outside of that, then you're getting into a different conversation. So I guess you want those guys to team up. Yeah, I mean, and they should be thinking about it. And I think that there is going to be like a, you know, a Kevin Durant effect here. If they go ahead and win the title, the next group of guys who are up, whether they're trade targets or they're free agents, are going to be thinking, you know, who can we who can we pair with? Who has cap space or the ability to create cap space for two of us so that we can even be in this conversation? Because you have a lot of guys who are really good in this age range between 25 to 28 who are thinking, can I re- realistically get a title here if Golden State's going to be this good for not only this season, but the next, you know, two, three, four years, however long they're able to resign, you know, Curry and Durant for the summer. So uh, hopefully these guys are thinking outside the box uh, in terms of trying to pair up. You know, hopefully some of these GMs are going into the summer with that being part of their pitch, and I'm sure they are. Have I told? I don't think I've told you my my favorite crazy Boston idea. It's not, I think, the best path for them. But you know, if this is what's if this is what's available, is that theoretically? I, I know that they're going to be uncomfortable giving Isaiah his next contract because he's going to be older. He's super small. There are a lot of risks there. If Chris Paul expressed a willingness to go there to sign Chris Paul and trade Isaiah. I think would just like think about how good that team would be next year if basically you made that change and then use their other money aggressively draft picks however like at that point then you could probably trade some of their contracts and everything else to get like you could probably sign do that swap and get Jimmy Butler or Paul George in that way then all of a sudden you're a title contender yeah, I mean, while we're poaching the Clippers, I mean, I think we should potentially think about a scenario. What if the Lakers are able to sell Blake on staying in L.A. but being the face of the Lakers? And then they can trade, say, their their upcoming draft pick and somebody like Russell as part of a package to the Pacers to get Paul George. So now, you know, their new look core is built around, like, Ingram, Blake, and Paul George. Like, that would be something where if I'm Paul George and Blake, I'd be like, oh, this sounds like more fun for the next five years than... Uh, the current situation that those guys are in. And it's not like completely inconceivable from a cap standpoint. Obviously this is like the best possible scenario for the Lakers new front office to like hit the ground running. But I do think the the broader point here is that we should keep an eye on the Clippers in terms of their stars and, and do those guys move because they have a pretty hard ceiling. I think coming into this playoffs with, with the way they've been playing, just kind of inconsistency wise and number the sheer volume of free agents that they have in terms of key guys who are going to be hitting the market this summer you know all it takes is you know reddick to decide he wants to take a big cash out from some sort of middling team and then all of a sudden you know their formula is pretty much broken uh, in terms of their ability to compete with the best teams. so that could set off kind of a domino effect so yeah i mean i think chris paul to me is the most likely to remain with the clippers just because of his financial reasons for doing so uh, well, and the but, family and yeah, the family reasons too. I mean, I was talking yeah, with sure. I talked with Dan Wookie for Real Jam Radio months ago, and I floated the Boston idea, and he said I just can't imagine him moving his family there, and I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, no, definitely, and especially after all this work to kind of like set up his ability to get this long term contract. Uh, I would be surprised if Chris goes, but I wouldn't be surprised if any of the rest of them go. And if I'm Blake, like he should ask himself this question: Do you want to be number two for Chris Paul for your entire career? 
kind of capped in terms of what your role is uh, on that team for the duration of your prime? Or do you want to go and enjoy life as the main guy, as sort of, you know, the number one, like, you know, freelancing, freewheeling point power forward and, you know, see how far you can take that. You know, if the ceiling for the Clippers is going to be like, you know, first round and out or one series victory and out, I don't see a huge risk in him, you know, trying to go somewhere else and being the guy. So uh, we'll see if he reaches that conclusion or if he decides, hey, LA is awesome. I just want to stay and just kind of roll this thing back. But I'm kind of of the mindset that Blake should really look hard and, and consider his options. A related note on the Clippers that gets lost in the shuffle too much is that DeAndre Jordan is going to be a free agent next summer. And yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big <laughs> risk in this whole thing because if any of those guys stay or if all of them stay and then DeAndre leaves, then they're screwed anyway. Like, let's say let's say they all come back and then they lose in the first round again this year and next year, let's say. Then, you know, DeAndre has a pretty good life. I'm sure he loves being in L.A. and the weather and he's on a competitive team. But I could certainly see him, especially considering the way he was looking at other teams before and committed to another team before, going a different direction. And then if you're the Clippers, you've given basically mega max deals to two different guys and you're still, you know, at that point, they're probably like an eight seed type team. So that might even be a worst case scenario for them than having it blow up. Yeah. No, I, I I think there's motivations on all sides for this to sort of be the last year of this group. And Doc talked last year about things getting stale. And you know, one reason why I was almost advocating for them to like pull the trigger on a Carmelo Anthony trade, even though I didn't really think it would fix that much, is just that it would kind of shake up the inertia that's kind of built around this team. And maybe it was just kind of dog days of the season where you know they had a couple of months there that were kind of slow and and kind of unsightly basketball. Uh, but until here, you know, recently, these last couple of games, they've just been really uninspiring. They look like a team that's not having a ton of fun. And their early season magic just feels like it's been so long ago. I mean, when they were just smoking everybody in November, that almost feels like two or three years ago. And, you know, it might be gone for good. And if that's the case, you know, hopefully their ownership and their management is is willing to admit that and try to retool this thing and go a different direction. At the same point, you brought up the Mellow thing. I, there's a part of me that just sits in, sits in the back of my brain of, what if they trade for Mellow and sign Dwayne Wade? You know, like, what if they go that direction? And, you know, there's always that possibility, too. That's why the Clippers are fun is because they have upside and downside. And those are the teams that are always interesting when we get into the offseason. I've talked about that with the Utah Jazz before. You know, the Jazz could this could be the summer where they secure like being a regular contender or they lose Gordon Hayward and we and we wonder what might have been. You know, like this could go in a lot of different directions for them. You could some would argue Boston in that Boston even maybe more in the lottery than anything else. You know, if they get the third or the fourth pick, this turns into something very different. Those those guys are quite good in this draft, but just in terms of trade value, in terms of what they're trying to get for something else. And so, yeah, I, I'm so excited for this playoffs and everything else. But I every time I talk to like, I talk to you, I talk to Bontemps, I talk to you know Nate or Kevin Pelton, I get so excited for the summer because even though it's not going to be the Durant you know shift or you know LeBron going back to Cleveland, there's going to be a lot of this like establishment of title contenders and kind of where the landscape of the league is going for the next like five to 10 years. For sure. And to go back to your Haywood thing real quick, I think he has got more pressure on him than almost anybody outside of the Warriors, Cavs, Harden, and Isaiah Thomas. Like, I think if you take those guys out of it, Gordon Hayward, like, strangely has the most pressure in this playoffs because he's got no track record of postseason success. They've been building so steadily to try to just even get into the playoffs. 
he's going to carry such an immense burden to try to keep their offense going uh, once they get there. And, you know, they're going to be in a series basically guaranteed against a team that has significantly more playoff experience than them, almost no matter who they face. If they play the Clippers in the first round, it's going to be a series where L.A. has an advantage at point guard. The centers are going to cancel each other out, and Blake has a big advantage at the power forward spot. So that basically means, like, Hayward has to win his spot, and he has to win it convincingly against a team that's got some, you know, like a guy like Mbamute or whoever you want to throw on Hayward. I and mean, they've got some defensive options for Hayward. And then he's also just in a contract year where – he hasn't really been discussed as that much of a flight risk, not nearly to the degree of guys like Jimmy Butler and Paul George have been discussed in trade rivers, but he absolutely could decide Utah doesn't have the ability to compete for a title because they're going to have to pay George Hill you know, Boris Diaz is pretty much done. Joe Johnson was a short-term fix. And if they you know pay Hayward tons of money, they've already maxed out Gobert. You know, how are they going to be able to really attract talent in the short term to put around him where he could be part of his own reason for leaving. You know what I mean? Like if he's not able to deliver in the postseason, uh, he could easily come to the conclusion that like, it's just not going to work in Utah. And that's a weird place to be in because I think the analogy I made one time, it's sort of like you're slowly climbing a mountain and you get to the top and then you realize there's a fork in the road. <laughs> like that's sort of where the jazz have been, where everything's been real good and kind of promising and slowly, but surely getting better until this huge inflection point where it could all be taken apart if he leaves and, and then they're going to be you know stuck in a completely different spot for their long-term future so and to kind of add on top of all of that he's been a little bit banged up recently in terms of his knee issue so i don't know man like that is one of the most intriguing summer plots to watch uh, in the first round and like if they go out to the clippers in five games you know which is definitely possible uh, given how well la has sort of dominated that head-to-head matchup in recent years what do you do if you're him you know yeah I mean, she's well, and so you think about it, like as much as I love the Jazz talent. Let's say Boston gets a top two pick or even the number one pick. Their talent is not that different from Utah, and they have more financial flexibility to get better beyond that. And they have another Nets pick. Exactly. And what if their what if their pitch to Hayward is the same thing we talked about with Butler and, and George earlier, which is look, you come here and sign, and we'll trade for Paul George. <laughs> you know god like, if those is, two guys after being compared for all these years in kevin's chats if those two guys end up as teammates oh i know but that's like a legitimate possibility or even Absolutely. if it's not paul george what if it what if it's jimmy you know what if boston's master plan for hayward is you come here and sign we'll trade for jimmy and now do they have the best roster one to eight in the eastern conference you know or at least right there with cleveland next season right i mean that is a very compelling alternate reality especially compared to one where Hey, Utah decides, well, we can't afford to pay everybody. So George Hill leaves. And so now it's back to this question mark at the point guard spot. And, you know, they're still waiting on camp favors and Burks and all these other guys stay healthy. Sounds better to you, you know? And like, not, not to mention like the coaching factor and Hayward would be a God in Boston, you know, like there's no doubt about that. He would be a gigantic fan favorite there. So that is compelling, you know? And, and if, well, imagine if Tom Brady shows up at his free agency meeting, you know, <laughs> like they, these guys know how to play this game of recruiting. And I think he's certainly a guy who deserves to be watched a little bit more carefully than he has been in terms of names that, that could move this summer. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fascinating development. Uh, last time we had a we did a podcast together, I asked you the question of what teams you're enjoying watching the most. And I, I feel like that's a good way to end this one as well. Just who are you Who are you enjoying? I know who you're watching, but who are you enjoying the most? Oh, that is always a, a tricky question. You can I think say, you can say not the Bulls. 
Yeah, no, definitely not the Bulls. I mean, there's a lot of teams that I've really just completely grown sick of. I mean, I think like a lot of people, I've enjoyed seeing the fruits of the the Nurkic trade on both sides. Like, I, I've enjoyed watching the Nuggets since that trade. I've enjoyed watching the Blazers since that trade. The Pelicans have been really weird to watch a- after the move, and you know they're kind of ripe for second guessing. Uh, but I, I still stand by they're thinking on that and, and sort of what they're trying to do going forward. And you know, I don't have a huge problem with it. I've liked watching towns, you know, in Minnesota uh, down the stretch for sure. It's been awesome. Uh, but I'll admit a lot of the games I'm watching here are involving either the top five teams in the league to see how that's going to shake out or the MVP candidates. Cause all those guys have sort of been must see TV. And we've kind of reached a point where, you know, a whole bunch of these teams, either if, they, if they've either been mathematically eliminated or they've been like, you know, effectively eliminated. Uh, it's kind of gotten to the point of the season where we're, we're honing in on the cream of the crop. I've been heartily enjoying the Bucks. Just with Middleton getting oh, back, yeah. I've been devastated that Chris Middleton, that Middleton and and Jabari didn't get to play together. But they're so much fun. I could see them being problems for a lot of other teams. And sometimes at the end of the regular season. I like to focus on teams because until the last week or so that I'm not completely sure are going to be in the in the playoffs, but are are rel- still relevant. So I, I I've tuned out largely to the Magic, to the Suns, to those type of teams because I just feel like this isn't a representative sample, and I don't want to get myself tied in with stuff like that. Like if a guy looks apathetic, you know their team sucks. So this is a nice opportunity for those teams when on on situations where maybe there aren't as many. And since the Bucks often play when the Western Conference is going on, I end up watching them a lot. Been really enjoying them. You know, of course, the Warriors. Have been well, so the Warriors. hold on, one, hold on one second with the Bucks. Who, who do you think, uh, or what, what do you think their chances at winning a series, and who do you think they have the best chance to beat? So it's changed a lot over the last week. So I said the thing about how I wasn't, well, I was watching them because I didn't think they were going to make play. They were going to be really in the mix. I think their best shot. It actually might. I don't. I really don't want to use recency bias. I'm going to say it's the Raptors because they have guys to throw at DeRozan, and Kyle Lowry is not going to be 100 percent probably for that series. We haven't heard anything on him, which is crazy. Like the 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 lack of the lack of transparency. Like I, I'm not the biggest person who says like you have to report everything. You know, like you have to get into all that. But there's a difference between that and radio silence for like a month. And so <laughs> when you have radio silence for like a month. You get into that moment of, well, maybe he's not right. And if Lowry's not right in that series, Toronto's Toronto's going to have some major problems because they don't have a, a great guy to defend Giannis. And Brogdon has been doing a nice job. And Chris Middleton's phenomenal. Middleton is going to make DeRozan cry defensively. So I think that you have all that tying in together. But I also think they match up well against the Celtics because they have no fear of Isaiah Thomas. I mean, Thomas had a great game offensively. But in those moments, like Brogdon was backing him down. Brogdon, you know, they could make him feel him defensively. I, I think that that could work reasonably well. I don't think they have a great matchup against the Cavs because the Cavs are just, just have such a high ceiling. And I I I have really struggled a lot with what a Bucks wizard series would look like. I just don't really know how that would work. I could see both teams, you know, I, I, I could see it go being like a five or six game series, but either team winning. Yeah, I just think it would be amazing because, you know, Boston, Washington, and Toronto, all their fan bases are flying pretty high right now. You know, like they're all talking themselves into like, potentially playing spoilers for the conference and beating Cleveland. And I think if Milwaukee were to upset any of those three teams in the first round, it would just be the single funniest story. Like it would just, <laughs> it's like their fan bases would go from 
so excited to so disappointed. Well, the, the most crestfallen overnight would probably be the Wizards because the Wizards can't really improve from here. So if you're so if if they if they lose that series, then you go, well, crap. What are we doing now? You know, great. We're gonna resign. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna resign yeah. Otto Porter. We're gonna run this back for like two, three years. We're worse than the Cavs. We're now we lost to the Bucks. Like that. That would bring on the. You know, I I I think back to Mike Prada. I had him on for the Southeast Division podcast. It was him and I think it was Adi. Joseph and he talked about kind of like the downside of this season and I was feeling bad for him the whole beginning of the year when they were just bad and then they got better and I was super happy about it and then if that happens if they lose in the first round to the Bucks, I think that all just comes flooding back that's what I'm saying and, and it's kind of the same thing for I mean for Toronto the risk would be like well now who do you pay after just getting eliminated in the first round you know like how many of these guys do you have to let go uh, and then I think if you're Boston, it would mostly just like spoil the narrative of like, this is the next rising power. And like, it would probably unfairly shake some of their fans to the core, just given, you know, how bright their next three years looks. Uh, but still, it'd be just like one of those, just the ultimate spoiler move. So I am really actually pulling for Milwaukee pretty hard here. I also like, like you, I enjoy watching them, but mostly I'm rooting for them to just like completely ruin someone's spring. <laughs> And maybe summer. Also, Boston getting pushed or even losing to like Miami would be so devastating. You know, like you have all these stories about, oh, look, we're the rising power. And if they, I don't think they would lose to Miami, but that would be ridiculous. Yeah, for sure. I yeah, also just no, want to see I, Dion Waiters win at least one playoff game, like by his dominance. If we, I, I'm not sure we're going to get that considering the severity of his injury, but there would be few greater highlights in the first round than that. Yeah. I mean, it, it really feels like he's going to get a lot of attention. And I mean, almost no matter who they play, it's like he's worked himself into this spot where the internet loves him so much that he's going to be like the, the like man to watch, you know, it's kind of funny how these things change, you know, just a year ago, you know, like to now how far he's come, but that's the NBA. It is. Thank you so much for taking the time. Danny, it was another marathon, but we made it. Thanks for having me. I hope it all is well and congrats on your book, by the way. Thank you. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Sports Illustrated, si.com slash NBA for those of you who like doing it online. And you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. That's B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Really do enjoy talking with him and going through everything else around the league. There was a lot that we wanted to get through. And we, you know, we didn't plan out very much of it other than the MVP conversation. And it went in some fun directions. I really did enjoy that. So not exactly sure what I want to do next week. I have a couple of different ideas. I'm actually going to spend most of the week up in Portland for the Nike Hoop Summit, which is going to be a lot of fun to see some of the upcoming prospects. Those are usually kids that are going to be in college the next year. Not always, but it really does depend. But that's the general landscape of it. And I'll be checking out some NBA as well, of course, when you, when you do that and talking with some nice folks. So we'll see where all of that goes. I might do podcasts related to that. Probably not. We'll probably do something on Dunked On, though. So you can check that out. For those of you who are Warriors inclined, you can listen to Locked On Warriors, which I do with regularity, the Dunked On Basketball podcast. Nate and I just did the Twitter NBA show second screen on Wednesday night for Warrior Spurs, which ended up being a surprisingly engaging game considering the way that it started. And we're probably going to take next week either off or close to it because we're going to be away, but then we'll be back on it 
after that, after we both get back. And it's going to be a lot of fun to go through that. And do, we'll probably, I don't know if we'll do some Twitter NBA shows as well, where we do the halftime and post game, or whether we'll do more of the second screen. And with all of that and everything else, you can give me feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny LaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise that I will, that I will be able to respond. That's just the way that this goes. And yeah, it'll be fun. I'm actually going to be able to be doing more writing now. As some of you may have heard, I just announced today that, or not today, but recently that I finished the first manuscript for my book. I'm writing a book on the Golden State Warriors history. So basically from 62, when they moved to San Francisco to present. And then of course, going through that ties in older stuff as well, because players like Wilt Chamberlain and Al Adels and numerous others played in Philadelphia. So that history is in there as well to a degree, but it's, it is focused on 62, the present. It should be out in October. That's the timeline that Triumph, my publisher has, has given right now. It has been a giant undertaking. I am so thankful to Chris Rain of Real GM and numerous other people for being so accommodating of it. It's been a, a big project as you could imagine with it being a book and all. So that is something that's been in the works and it's not done yet. The way the first manuscript works is there, there are a lot of ed- editing processes that need to go through. I'm already, I've already started my next round of editing and I will continue doing that for a while, but it is a wonderful step in the process. And I appreciate everybody who's already been supportive of that. When more news comes out, of course, I will tell you, but that's enough for now. Still working on what direction I'm going to go next week, but I'm certain that it'll be fun. And also proud to be a part of the CLNS radio family, which is growing consistently, which is fabulous. And so you can check out the CLNS radio app as well. And there are a lot of great podcasts that are on there too. So you can check all those out, including some that I've guested on at recent times or in the past, you know, it really does depend. So, but if you want to support the show, there are a series of different great ways that you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It, that really does help because it just gives other people a reason to check it out. And if you, if, especially if it's positive, but you know, that's the way that it is. And also subscribing, downloading every episode really does help, especially with a show like Real Jam Radio, where my release date changes around based on when I have the time to edit. This is one of the rare times where I was actually able to record and edit on the same day. Usually that doesn't really work out, but it, it did today. So I'm really thankful for that. And also, of course, you can check out our sponsors for this episode. That is SeatGeek. So SeatGeek, you can buy and sell tickets there. And if you download their app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and enter the promo code REALGM under the settings tab, then you can get a $20 rebate on your first purchase. It's a great way to check out the app. It is something I used before they were a sponsor, and it's something I will use. Well, hopefully they're always a sponsor, but you never know. I I really do love it, and I've used it for a long time. So check it out, SeatGeek. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. 